Uh, but before we get started, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather together the uh, day that you've set aside for us to worship you, to receive your grace, and uh, to fellowship with one another. Lord, we ask that you would bless this time together this morning, that you would um, enable our efforts to better understand your word and your covenants. Um, and we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the second lesson on the on covenantal theology. Um, Second of two, so this is the last one also. Just a very broad overview. Uh, last week, we introduced the, the definition of covenant and covenant theology. So covenant is an oath-bound promise with conditions and consequences. And covenant theology is the reformed way of reading scripture where covenant is the, um, the, the overarching structure of the whole Bible. Uh, and then we looked at the covenant of redemption, uh, which is the eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, in which the Father uh, promises to give the Son the elect people um, in reward for the Son's obedience. And the Son promises to do everything necessary to redeem the elect people, and the Spirit promises to apply the Son's redemption to the elect. And we talked about how that uh, covenant is foundational to the covenants of works and grace because it's kind of the pattern of the covenant of works. Uh, the son had to work in order to receive the reward. Um, and then it's the, the, the basis for the covenant of grace because without redemption, there would be no grace. And so now we're going to look at those latter two covenants uh, more closely, the covenants of works and grace. Um, and hopefully we'll get through it all in our time together. So we'll start with the covenant of works. Uh, just first an overview so that you uh, kind of understand what, what it is we're talking about when we go in depth. There are various names that this covenant can go by. Um, not only covenant of works, but also covenant of creation, of nature, of life, of law. And each one kind of gets at a different aspect of the covenant. Uh, works, obviously, works and law get at the conditions of the covenant, the terms of um, uh, creation just gets at the timing. Uh, creation and nature kind of do the same thing uh, because it was made at creation uh, with the first man, Adam. And then life gets at the reward of the covenant. Um, so each one is, is a valid name, but we're going to go with the covenant of works because that's the most common one. Uh, the parties of the covenant are God and Adam. God and Adam, uh, the first man. Those are the parties of the covenant. Uh, the conditions of the covenant are personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Obedience is the condition of the covenant of works. That kind of makes sense. Works, obedience. Um. The consequences of the covenant, uh, it's twofold. There's a reward and a punishment. Uh, those are the consequences. So it's life for obedience and death for disobedience. Life for obedience, death for disobedience. Uh, death is obviously pretty clear from Genesis 1 to 3, but we'll look at life in just a bit. So that's the overview, and you have a definition on your outline uh, that the covenant of works is God's commitment to give Adam and his posterity in him eternal life for obedience or eternal death for disobedience. That's a good broad overview. 
just so you know what we're looking at. And now we're going to look at the legitimacy. Like, is this, is this a, a doctrine that we should actually believe, that it's a covenant of works? So we're going to look at our confessional data, and by that I mean uh, the Westminster Confession. That's our doctrinal standard. And then we'll look at biblical data. Uh, and the Westminster Confession is really just summarizing and synthesizing the biblical data, so it's, it'll be helpful. Uh, first, Westminster Confession 7.2, and this is a great uh, definition also. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So not just Adam, but also his posterity. Uh, and then I'll also read Larger Catechism 20, just because it goes a little bit more in depth. Um, I'll, skip, I'll skip over a little bit. So the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created uh, was also entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience of which the tree of life was a pledge and forbidding uh, to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So that's what our confessions say, and it's pretty obvious that this is a confessional doctrine. Uh, you can't really um, subscribe to the Westminster Confession and deny the covenant of works, at, um, at least without taking exception to it. So now the biblical data. Uh, the most obvious place to turn would be uh, where we see Adam, because this is a covenant made with Adam. So we would turn to Genesis 1, 2, 3. Uh, but when you look at that section, the term covenant is not used. So we see a relationship between God and Adam, but we don't see the word covenant. And so that means uh, that a lot of people, when they're looking at this, they don't, um, they don't believe that there is a covenant because the word isn't there. But you could say the same thing about sin. The word sin is not in Genesis 1 to 3 or any of similar words, transgression, etc. cetera. Uh, but sin is obviously there. It's the first sin ever committed is in Genesis 3. So even though the word isn't there, the reality is there. And so we're going to say the same thing about the word covenant. The word isn't there, but the reality is there in Genesis 1 to 3. We could say the same thing in 2 Samuel 7, which is where God makes a covenant with David. Uh, it's the Davidic covenant. The word covenant is not used in 2 Samuel 7. But later passages clarify that it is a covenant, especially Psalm 89. Psalm 89 several times talks about a covenant made between God and David. But when you look at 2 Samuel 7, the word covenant isn't used. Uh, so we could ask, is the same true of the covenant of works? Do later passages clarify the covenantal nature of God's relationship with Adam? And, and we're going to see that the answer is yes. Later passages do clarify that God's relationship to Adam was a covenant. So Hosea 6-7 is uh, probably the best example. Hosea 6-7, I'll read it for you once I have it up. It says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Uh, so it says, like Adam, they transgressed a covenant. So that means that Adam would have needed to be in a covenant to transgress. Uh, 
And we only see one transgression of Adam in all of scripture, and it's in Genesis 3 where he eats of the forbidden fruit. And so we could say that that transgression was part of a covenant that he was in. And there are various ways that people uh, who deny the covenant of works try to understand this passage. We can't really get into that, but this is, I think, the best way to understand it, that Adam was in a covenant, and here in Hosea, he is comparing Israel's covenant breaking to Adam's covenant breaking. So Adam was in a covenant that he transgressed. Uh, the next passage is Isaiah 24, 5. And this is talking about humans in general. Uh, he says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. So he's talking about humans in general, the inhabitants of earth, and he's saying that they broke the everlasting covenant. And that means humans in general would need to be in a covenant with God. Um, and what better covenant to identify that as than the covenant made with the first man and his posterity in him, namely Adam and all of his offspring, which would be all humans. Uh, so that's a helpful one. And then uh, we have these passages in Romans and 1 Corinthians where Adam is compared to Christ. Um, and and it's, it's shown that in Adam's disobedience, all humanity fell into sin and death. But in Christ's obedience, all those who are in him have life uh, and righteousness. And so we have this comparison between uh, two people, death in Adam's sin and life in Christ's obedience. Uh, and, and, and the best way to understand the relationship between these two people and the people that benefit or uh, are harmed by their obedience or disobedience is as a covenant. So they are covenantal heads, federal heads. They represent the people under them. And that's why we can have death in Adam's sin, but life in Christ's obedience. They're being compared. And of course, we see Christ as a covenantal head. Um, and we'll see this just in a bit when we look at the covenant of grace. But uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Um, so Christ was obviously head of a covenant and he's compared to Adam here as head of another covenant. All right, so moving on from the legitimacy, we've seen that it is biblical, it's confessional. Now let's look at the details of this covenant. Who are the parties? Who, who, was made, who made the covenant? Um, who, was, who was involved? So God, of course, is the sovereign king of the covenant. He sets the terms. Uh, he sets the conditions and the consequences. Um, and they're not just arbitrary. He doesn't set arbitrary conditions. Uh, it's not just his will, but it's also according to his nature. So the terms of the covenant actually reflect God's own character, his own goodness and holiness. Uh, Adam is the other party of the covenant. He is the servant king and the federal head. He's the representative of all mankind. So the federal head, uh, federal is just a, it comes from a Latin word meaning covenant. Uh, so he's the covenantal head, the federal head. And, and you, you know, we can see how that relates to uh, being a representative. We have federal representatives uh, in the federal government and they represent their constituents. So it's the same with Adam. He represented all of mankind because he was the first man. All mankind came after him. Those are the parties. Uh, now let's look at the covenantal nature. And this is kind of getting at the biblical data again, but uh, some people have denied that God's relationship to Adam was a covenant. 
they have, um, th they see a relationship there. They see uh, even conditions and consequences, but they don't want to call it a covenant because the word isn't uh, present in Genesis. Uh, so someone like John Murray, who's, who's a wonderful theologian, he's, very, uh, he's a very good writer, um, I love his, love his works, but he uh, denied that God had a covenant with Adam, and, and part of the reason was that he, he defined covenant as an administration of grace, namely uh, redemptive grace, and of course Adam didn't need to be redeemed because he wasn't yet sinful. So Murray denied that it was a covenant. And others, like, others kind of took the baton and ran with it way past what Murray would have wanted to do. People like Norman Shepard, um, people like the Federal Vision Movement, Doug Wilson, people like that. They're also what we would call mono-covenantalists. They only hold one covenant because they deny the covenant of works. Um, but people that went farther than Murray, uh, they kind of mix the pre-fall and the post-fall covenant. So it's different than what Murray did. Murray saw that there was works involved with Adam's relationship to God, but uh, people like in the Federal Vision uh, don't want to say that there was works involved or, or merit. They say that Adam, if he, if he got the reward, it would have been by grace through faith. And so it's mixing basically the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, which means that the covenant of grace is also a mix in which we have to work in some fashion. Uh, we have the same terms as Adam did, putting us back in the garden. So uh, these, these groups of people, in various ways, they deny the covenant of works for various reasons. But the early church recognized uh, that there was a conditional covenant between God and man. This, this isn't like a new, uh, a new doctrine. It wasn't like the Westminster Confession invented this. Uh, this was recognized in the early church, as early as uh, Irenaeus, who was in the second century. Um, but I'm going to read you a quote from Augustine, who was in the fourth and fifth century. He wrote in the City of God, uh, which is his, his masterpiece, he wrote that for the first covenant which was made with the first man is just this, and the day you eat thereof you will surely die. And so he's obviously saying that there was a covenant between God and Adam, um, and that it was the covenant that God made when he said, in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So this is a historical Christian doctrine. Um, and we can also say about this, uh, about the covenantal nature, that if, if God's relationship to Adam was in the form of a covenant, then it, it is a covenant. It doesn't have to have the word if it has the form. Uh, one of my professors would say, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's obviously a duck. And it's the same with covenant. Uh, so remember our definition. It's an oath-bound promise with conditions and consequences. And this is what we see in Genesis 1 to 3. We see a sworn oath in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, where God uh, prohibits Adam from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he, he gives the consequence of death if he disobeys that. Uh, we see conditions. Again, the, the prohibition of eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is a condition of the covenant. But we also see in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 28, there's a condition of what's often called the cultural mandate to uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Uh, and then we see consequences, obviously death. Uh, we see in Genesis 2, 17, uh, death 
is the consequence for disobedience, but there's also a positive consequence for obedience. Uh, and you can see that in Genesis 3.22, uh, where after the fall, God says to Adam, or God says, I guess, maybe to himself, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. And then he casts man out so that he wouldn't eat the tree of life. So the tree of life is a positive consequence. And we'll look at that in a little bit also. But so we see an oath, we see conditions, we see consequences, which means that we see a covenant. Another thing we can say is that, the, that God's act of creation itself is covenantal. His act of creation itself is covenantal. Um, we can see that in Genesis 1.26 when God uh, decides, you know, so to speak, in the, in the narrative, he decides to create man. He said, let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion over the creatures. There was a purpose for which God created man. There was a condition, uh, a, a a, he, God created man in order to give him a task. And that task was having dominion over creation. Uh, you could also say God's images, O oh God, obedience. We're created in a way that we already owe God obedience. Uh, we're created in a way that we have to imitate God. We're his image. We need to image him properly. Um, and you could also say God's images are obligated to follow God's pattern that we see in chapter one of Genesis. What does God do? He works for six days and then he rests on a seventh day. So he has to, you know, so to speak, he has to earn his rest by working. And that's how his images would have had to work as well. They wouldn't have just worked forever nonstop. They would have worked and then rested. They would have earned their rest by working. So God's act of creation itself is covenantal. Uh, it's, we see the form of a covenant, um, and this is a, this is a historical doctrine. So it's, it's a good, uh, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with calling this a covenant. It's helpful to call God's relationship to Adam a covenant, and it's biblical to do so as well. So now let's look at the conditions and the consequences of this covenant. Uh, some would argue that Adam would not have meritoriously earned a reward meritoriously, meaning he wouldn't have merited it. Um, for example, again, Doug Wilson in the Federal Vision Movement, he said that the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are both kept in the same way, by grace through faith. Uh, but again, this obliterates the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Uh, so we're put back in the same place as Adam. We're doing the same thing as Adam. Uh, we could hypothetically fall the same way as Adam. So we have to ask this question, can a human actually merit a reward from God? Uh, is this something that is even possible? Uh, because God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't need anything from his creatures. And so in the absolute sense, the answer is no. Uh, humans could not merit anything from God because they couldn't give him anything that he didn't already have. But in the covenantal sense, the answer is yes. That God, God sets the terms. He sets the conditions and the consequences. And if you obey the conditions, then you get the reward. Uh, so he, he is sovereign over the covenant. If God says, if you do this, then you will earn a reward, it's true. If you do it, you'll, you'll earn the reward. You could say you'll merit the reward. Uh, and so the next question we have to ask is, is it grace 
for God to give a reward if somebody obeys the terms? Is it grace? Uh, And the answer is no. It's not grace for God to reward somebody for doing what he told them to do. That's works. That's what Romans 4.4 says. Uh, If I can pull it up, Romans 4.4 Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted according to grace, but according to obligation. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I had to, I had to kind of give you my own translation there because um, the ESV says gift instead of grace, but it's the same word. The same word can mean gift or grace. Um, and so Paul is saying that when you work and you get a reward, that's not grace. That is obligation. That is, that is what is due uh, for, your, uh, for your obedience. So it would not have been grace if, if Adam fulfilled the terms of the covenant and then got the reward. That would have been works. Uh, so what is grace? That's, that's another helpful question to ask. What is grace? It's not just divine love or benevolence or goodness. It's something more specific. It's God's favor toward sinners. Some people define grace as God's unmerited favor. I think it's even more helpful to say God's demerited favor. Uh, It's not just merit that he gives to people who don't deserve it, but he gives it to people who deserve the exact opposite, who deserve punishment. That's what grace is. And of course, Adam would not have needed grace because he hadn't sinned yet. Uh, He didn't deserve punishment, so he couldn't have been given demerited favor. The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 7.1 gives a really helpful answer to this question. Would would it have been grace uh, for Adam? It says that the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he has been pleased to express by way of a covenant. So they don't say grace, they say voluntary condescension, and I think that's really helpful. Uh, It's God stooping down to his creature to be in relationship with them, to make a covenant with them. It's not him showing grace. Um, There is a, a gracious covenant, but it wasn't this one that God made with Adam. Another question we can ask was, did, did Adam need faith before the fall? And in order to answer that, we can ask, what is faith? Uh, Faith has been traditionally defined as knowledge, assent, and trust. So you need to know uh, in whom you believe. You need to assent to to what you're believing, and you need to trust in whom you believe. And trust is really the heart of saving faith. When the Westminster Confession defines faith, it says that the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, resting, and receiving in Christ alone for your salvation. Uh, And that is what trust is. It's accepting, resting, and receiving in a mediator, in somebody else who worked for you. And so Adam didn't need this trust, this, this resting faith, because there was no mediator before the fall. Adam was it. Uh, he, he couldn't have rested in somebody else's obedience because he was required to be the one to obey. So there wasn't this saving faith, this, this, trust, uh, this trusting faith, but there was knowledge and assent. So there was a type of faith, but it wasn't saving faith that we have after the fall. 
So basically what I'm saying is Doug Wilson is wrong. <laughs> uh, so let's look at the conditions. We've gone through that whole thing, merit and grace. Let's look at conditions. The conditions of the covenant are personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That's straight from Westminster Larger Catechism 20. Not faith. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Uh, obedience to the moral law which was written on Adam's heart. Um, I can't really go into that, but uh, some of our theologians, especially in the Mare of Modern Divinity, it says that Adam received the same law that uh, Israel did on Mount Sinai, but with less thunder and lightning, something like that. <laughs> um, so he, he basically the Ten Commandments is what they're saying. Um, he had the moral law written on his heart. He couldn't have killed uh, anyone. Uh, you know, he couldn't have... He couldn't have committed adultery. Um, th those would have been violations of the covenant. So he had to obey the moral law. He had to obey the cultural mandate. Genesis 128, to, again, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Um, and he had to obey, of course, the probationary law that we see in Genesis 2.17, which is that law, um, the forbidding of, the, of, of eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and that's a probationary law because it was a test. It was, it was showing Adam's obedience or disobedience. And, and this, is, this obedience is personal, meaning it was rendered by Adam himself. It wasn't somebody else obeying on his behalf. It was perfect, meaning he had to obey every law in every faculty, uh, you know, not just his heart, but also his hands, his mouth, uh, his speech, um, and you can see that it was, it was perfect obedience that was required because one sin brought total judgment. Just one sin. Uh, it was perpetual obedience, so not just momentary, but it had to be forever. He couldn't have just obeyed once and then disobeyed the rest of his life. He had to continually obey. Um, and Adam was equipped with everything he needed to obey. He was, he was created perfectly righteous. Uh, he had every, uh, every good thing from God, and he, he could have perfectly obeyed God's law. He was totally able to do it. Uh, and now the consequences, of course, life and death. Uh, death is obvious, Genesis 2.17. In the day you eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And it's not just physical death, uh, but also spiritual death. We see in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And eternal death, which we see in Revelation 20. Uh, we, we see the second death, which is the lake of fire. So not just physical, but spiritual and eternal death are the consequence for the covenant of works. Um, and life is the, the reward uh, again, we see this in Genesis 3.22. I read it for you earlier. But when we read that, that passage where God says, uh, lest he also eat of the tree of life and live forever, those words lest and also show us that he didn't already eat the tree of life. So it was held out as a reward for obedience. He hadn't eaten it yet. And it's not just static immortal life that would have been the uh, reward. He wouldn't have just stayed in the Garden of Eden forever. It was eternal and eschatological life. In other words, the same life that we're promised in Christ was Adam's promised reward. You can see this in Hebrews 2.5. We looked at this uh, several weeks ago, but we see that uh, the world to come was subjected to man when he was first created. The world to come, not just this world, but the eschatological world. We can also see that the tree of life 
uh, represents eschatological life. Because what, do we, what happens when, when we see uh, the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22:14? We see the tree of life there. Um, and it represents eschatological, eternal life. And we also have the Sabbath principle in creation. Uh, just like God worked and then rested, Adam would have worked and then rested. He would have had, he would have had a goal, um, a, a, a rest to work for. So that shows us that it wasn't just static. He wouldn't have just stayed the same forever. Uh, there, was, there was something more that he was trying to attain or that he was promised. Uh, so now the enduring status, and by this I just mean that the covenant of works uh, was not repealed when Adam broke it. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, taken away. The, the conditions and the consequences remain binding. The conditions and the consequences of the covenant of works remain binding. Uh, because, you know, just as Adam rep represented all humans in the covenant of works, so all humans remain in the covenant of works unless uh, they enter into the covenant of grace. Uh, so all humans are born in the covenant of works. Outside of Christ, we are all dead in sin and bound for eternal death. Outside of Christ, death is still the consequence for Adam's sin. Outside of Christ, life is still offered for obedience. Uh, and you can see that in, when, when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler in Mark 10. The rich young ruler says, what must I do to earn eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Obey the commandments. And he wasn't lying. Uh, life is still offered for obedience, but because we fell with Adam, we are spiritually dead, and so we're unable to obey. So outside of Christ, we are all lost in sin and death because of the covenant of works. And that, that brings us to the importance, and that's where we'll close with the covenant of works, and then we'll look at the covenant of grace. But the importance, it, the covenant of works explains why people are condemned outside of Christ. It explains why um, it isn't unjust for God to condemn us for Adam's sin. Uh, it also teaches us that heaven must be earned. Heaven must be earned. Um, and it sheds light on the last Adam, who is Christ, the last Adam, who did uh, earn our righteousness. He obeyed and earned heaven for us. So that's the covenant of works, and now we need to move on to the covenant of grace. We have to move kind of quickly, but I think we'll get it. Covenant of grace. We'll look at uh, the Reformed doctrine, just the, the overview first. The overview. Um, the parties of the covenant of grace are God and believers with their children. Believers with their children. Uh, the sworn oath of the covenant of grace is that I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's from Jeremiah 31, 33. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then conditions and consequences, and we'll get to this, um, whether it is conditional or not. But we'll say right now, the condition is belief in Christ and the consequence is eternal life. So let's look at the legitimacy of the covenant of grace. This is not as... Um, Contested, I mean, basically all Reformed people agree that there is a covenant of grace. It's mainly um, disagreement over the covenant of works. But again, we'll look at the confessional data. This is a helpful summary of, of the covenant of grace. So uh, Westminster Confession 7.3, man by his fall 
having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, meaning the covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So, very clearly, there's the covenant of grace uh, promising life to sinners, requiring of faith in them and in, in Christ. Uh, so now let's look at the biblical data. It's obviously confessional. We see it in our doctrinal standard. Let's look at the biblical data now. All right, so first in Genesis 3.15, uh, this is right after the fall into sin. This is right after uh, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Then God um, punishes the serpent, then the woman, then the man. And when he's giving the curse of the serpent, uh, he's, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So this is commonly called the Proto-Evangelium. Um, I can write that up for you because it's kind of hard to spell. Proto-Evangelium. And that just means the first gospel, the Proto-Gospel. This is the first promise of the covenant of grace. Uh, we see a couple things. We see first that God will put enmity between, between the serpent and the woman. Uh, and I, I read one I think it was in Sacred Bond. One book was saying that this is God uh, dissolving the covenant that the woman made with the serpent. When the, when the woman agreed with what the serpent said and obeyed the serpent, she was kind of in league against God, in covenant with the serpent. And so God now breaks, he, he dissolves that covenant, and then he promises a specific offspring, a specific seed uh, that would crush the serpent's head. And this is the first uh, promise of the covenant of grace. This is the first promise of a mediator uh, to undo what Adam did. The first promise of the last Adam to save us from the sin of the first Adam. So that's Genesis 3.15. Uh, the next, it's a kind of a large section, but Genesis 12 to 21, we see several times God coming to Abraham and making covenant with him. The first time is in Genesis 12. Um, and I'll read you from 17.7 because I think this summarizes God's promise to Abraham in the covenant that he makes with him. He says, uh, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So that's, what, that's the promise of the covenant of grace, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And that's what God promised to Abraham. And that's why when Paul uh, contrasts the law uh, to the promise, he's contrasting basically the Mosaic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Abrahamic covenant being the covenant of promise. And this promise is repeated uh, throughout scripture, especially in the prophets. Uh, we can see it in Jeremiah 31, 33, which I already read to you. Um, but then you can see it also all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, 3 where it says, uh, God's dwelling is with man, he will be their God and they will be his people. So this is the promise of the covenant of grace that we see finally um, fulfilled to the nth degree in Revelation 22. 
And then we see the new covenant, and the new covenant is really, um, yeah, it's kind of the, the, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. We see it promised in Jeremiah 31, which I already read to you. Uh, it's quoted extensively in Hebrews 8. Actually, it's the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament, is in Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31. And then, of course, Luke twenty two twenty, where Jesus says, uh, this cup, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, this cup is the cup of the new covenant made in my blood. So the, the new covenant is, is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of grace. Uh, so that's the biblical data. It's a, it's a biblical doctrine that there's a covenant of promise. Uh, it, it's a confessional doctrine. Now let's look at some specifics. Who are the parties? We've already said it briefly, uh, God and believers with their children. So God is the initiator of the covenant, the initiator. He, he again, he sets the terms. Uh, he enters into covenant with sinful people as a gracious redeemer. And then the human party. The human party is sinful humans, but ultimately uh, the elect. And so this can cause some trouble for some people. Um, how, how could it be with these two, how could it be with sinful humans generally, but also with the elect? Uh, and, and there's a distinction to be made. The elect are internal participants of the covenant of grace. So the elect receive uh, regeneration. They receive justification, sanctification. They're internal participants. Uh, they are members of the invisible church. Uh, there are external members of the covenant of grace who are not elect. They're members of the visible church only. Um, and we can explain this by saying God created the covenant of grace not just with individuals, but in order to make a covenant community. So he made it with individuals in order to make a community. Um, and all who profess faith and their children participate externally. Just like in the Old Testament, every Israelite and every Israelite child was a member of the covenant. Um, and that's why we baptize our children, because we believe that they are members of the covenant, uh, because of this, this, this covenant promise that he'll be God to us and to our children. And so they're members of the covenant, and so we give them the sign of the covenant. But only God knows who is an, in, an internal member. Only God knows. The invisible church is invisible because only God sees it. Uh, so, so we walk by faith, giving all who profess faith and their children the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we, don't, we don't assume, or, you know, uh, uh, I think Spurgeon said, if, if all of the elect had a red mark on their back, I'd go up pulling up everybody's shirt tails. Uh, that's not what we have to do. We don't know who's elect, so we give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Uh, not all participate internally because some church members uh, walk away. They apostatize. Uh, but the elect do not. Believing parents also must walk by faith in God's promise to their children. So that's what we have to say about covenant membership. Uh, the last party of the covenant is not technically a party. He's the mediator. Christ the God-man is the only mediator of the covenant of grace. Christ the God-man. He isn't a party. He's the mediator. He's a party, remember from last week, of the covenant of redemption, uh, in which he earned the redemption that he gives as a mediator in the covenant of grace. So he dispenses what he earned in the covenant of redemption as the mediator of the covenant of grace. Uh, so now the conditions and consequences 
first, the question, is it conditional or unconditional? I think we can make a distinction. When compared to the covenant of works, the covenant of grace is obviously unconditional. The covenant of grace is obviously unconditional because human good works do not bring covenant blessings in any way. It's not like Adam where he had to obey, he had to do something in order to get a reward. Rather, obedience was rendered by a mediator and imputed to believers. So the only obedience that was rendered was, was rendered by Christ. But in another sense, there is one condition to the covenant of grace, which is faith in the mediator. Faith in the mediator is, in a sense, the only condition of the covenant of grace. Uh, faith is not meritorious like works, but it is the instrument. We receive salvation through faith because faith rests in another. Faith is resting and trusting and receiving what somebody else did for us, what Christ did for us. Um, and we saw in the covenant of works that heaven needs to be earned and we see in the covenant of grace that Christ earned heaven for us and we need to receive it uh, by faith. Uh, and there's another difference between these two covenants in terms of the condition and that's that Faith, which is the condition of the covenant of grace, faith is a gift given by God. We see that in Ephesians 2, 8. Uh, it's a gift given by God, so it's not something that we have in ourselves. Um, it's not something that makes us better than other people. Um, it's something that God gives to us graciously. So those are the conditions. Now the consequences. Uh, and the consequences, I'm, I'm gonna say first that the consequences are all of Christ's redemptive benefits all of Christ's redemptive benefits. So it's a reward. Um, and, and you can really say that the, the, the reward of the covenant of grace is the same that was promised to Adam in the covenant of works. It's, it's life, it's eternal life. And that's why the tree of life is in the new Jerusalem. When you read Revelation 22, it's the same life that Adam was promised. But in order to get there, we need Christ's redemption. We need our sins forgiven. We need to be justified. Uh, so we can see in Acts 16.31 the condition and the consequence. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, then you will be saved. So that's the conditions and the consequences. Um, now briefly, the unity of the covenant of grace. So really the point of the covenant of grace is that since all are condemned in Adam under the covenant of works and unable to obtain life and blessed communion with God through it, God entered into another covenant with man through which he could obtain life by grace. So because the covenant of works is broken, God enters into another covenant which would give man life without works. And that means there's only one covenant of grace throughout all scripture. All scripture only presents one covenant of grace. And so um, when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, these are all expressions, they're all administrations of the one covenant of grace because there's only one way of salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Abraham was saved in the same way that we are because there was only one mediator. First Timothy 2.5 says there's only one mediator uh, between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And that wasn't just talking about, you know, after Jesus was born, there was only one mediator, but throughout all history, there's only been one mediator. Uh, scripture says that the Old Testament saints were saved by faith in Jesus. Not just faith in general, but faith in Jesus. 
Uh, John 8, 56, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says that Abraham saw my day and was glad. So Abraham was looking forward to Jesus' day. He had faith that the Messiah, the mediator, would come, the, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Uh, Hebrews 11, is, you know, it's famously called the, the, the Hall of Fame or something like that, the, of the saints. Um, we see all of these various acts of faith that the Old Testament saints did. And we see that they had the same promises and the same hope and faith as us. For example, he, Hebrews eleven twenty six says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the wealth of Egypt. He considered the reproach of Christ so he, he was identifying, he had faith in Christ. And so we can see that the Old Testament saints had faith in the seed of the woman who was promised in Genesis 3.15 uh, who would crush the serpent's head. They looked forward to the Messiah uh, who is Jesus. Uh, and so we can say that the Old Testament covenants, covenants were administrations of the one covenant of grace. They were administrations. Uh, Westminster Confession 7, 6, there are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So you can see that in Ephesians 2, 11 uh, through 12. I'm not gonna read it right now, but I'll summarize it for you. Uh, he's talking to the Gentiles in the church in Ephesus, and he says that you know uh, that, that, that prior to coming to Christ, uh, or, or even prior uh, prior to Christ's coming, prior to his incarnation, the Gentiles were without Christ, but Israel had Christ. Uh, they were separated from the covenants in the Old Testament, but now in Christ, uh, they have the same promise that Israel had. Uh, you, you could also see in Colossians 2.17 that the substance of the Old Testament covenants of promise is Christ. He, in 2.17, he's talking about uh, the Sabbaths, the dietary laws, etc., of the Old Testament, and he said the substance of those uh, is Christ. And so now we'll close, we'll look at the importance of the covenant of grace. Um, obviously, the covenant of grace gives the hope of the gospel to those who are condemned under the covenant of works. It gives us redemption and life in Christ. Uh, it explains how to read the Bible. It explains how to read the Bible as one overarching story of God's redemption. Um, it's not just individual disconnected stories. It's one overarching story of God's redeeming his people, of God's entering into covenant with them to save them. Through the covenant of grace, we receive rest, the rest that Jesus promised in Matthew 11, uh, because we no longer have to work. We're not under the covenant of works. Instead, we can rest in the one who worked for us. Uh, we receive the reward of the covenant of works, which is the tree of life, even though we broke its conditions and deserve its punishment because Christ earned the reward for us and gives it freely by grace to those who believe in him. So even though we deserve the punishment, we receive the reward that was promised in the covenant of works, but we receive it by grace. The covenant of works says, do this and you will live, and the covenant of grace says, God did it for you, and so now you can have life. The covenant of grace gives us hope when life in this world is troubling, when everything around us seems like it's falling apart. We can hope that we have the substance of the covenants. We have the hope of the tree of life in the new creation. And so the covenant of grace uh, has, has a lot to offer us and it's helpful 
uh, to see the covenant of grace throughout all the biblical covenants. And so that was our brief series on the covenants, on the covenant theology. Um, so we're out of time, but you can come up to me and talk, uh, talk to me, ask me questions. Um, thanks for hanging on.